live of what God's been doing this weekend. I tell you, we had an incredible marriage seminar. I hope that, um, well, I regret some of you didn't make it, but that's okay. I understand you, you couldn't, but everybody should have been there. I'm telling you, I'm hurting. I'm from laughing so hard. It was really a good time. So we've been here Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, let's see, this is our one, two, three, four, five, fifth service. But I feel good. Feel good. And um, I want to also remind you that Wednesday night we're starting a brand new series. Um, no, we're not this Wednesday. This is, this is going to be Halloween, but fall harvest. And I do invite all of you to come and help us reach people because we will have, uh, oh, about 1,500 folks on the, on the property. A lot of them totally lost. They're here to celebrate the devil's night. We're going to make it the Lord's night and reach them. So I encourage you to, to come. It's a great time. We believe in uh, capitalizing on the enemy's uh, assignments and, and redeeming them for the glory of God. So, but then on November 7th, we start a brand new series on Galatians. We're going to go through Galatians. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith God has made you free and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And so we'll be starting going through the whole bo uh, book over a period of weeks and of course you'll get the notes and you're going to learn the scriptures and I really encourage you to take advantage of that. Now, we've been going through Bible blockbusters and naming every one of these messages according to a reality TV show. I confess to the early service, I've maybe watched five minutes of reality TV in my life, but we're calling it these, uh, like today, Top Chef, and uh, so that you'll remember them and to kind of give it a little bit of a appeal. You say, well, how in the world can you preach on Top Chef? I'm going to show you. So let's go ahead and go to the verse, and, and we're going to dive right in. Now, in this context, or these passages, what leads up to is Jesus has risen from the dead. And he has appeared to the disciples on the seashore. Now, remember, Peter had denied him. They have been fishing all night. They have caught nothing. And so Jesus invites them to a fish fry. So I want you to notice Jesus was not a vegan. He ate meat. He ate fish. So let's read what happened here. The disciple uh, Jesus loved, that being John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, why did he say it's the Lord? Because they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, throw your net on the right side. And the net went on the right side and they caught 153 large fish. Now, I want you to notice whenever Jesus gave direction, it was to the right, not to the left. I'm just, that's free. And when they went right, they succeeded. All right. Now, they bring in this huge load of fish. And it says when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, and jumped into the water and headed to shore. And the others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore. For they were only about 100 yards from shore. And when they got there, it says they found breakfast waiting for them. What a breakfast that must have been. 
That beat IHOP, right? When you go to this. And then it says, fish were cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And Jesus said, so Simon Peter went and aboard and dragged the net to the shore. And look what there were, 153 large fish in one casting of the net. Now that's fishing. And it says, Jesus said to them, now come and have some breakfast. And none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. So he was top chef. Now the reason I'm bringing this out is because not only was he cooking for them a breakfast, but he was cooking something else up for his fallen disciple, Simon Peter, who needed to be restored. And so Jesus had an ulterior motive for bringing them to the shore, and it was to reach his man. Some of you today have failed. You've made a mistake. You've brought up issue between you and the Lord. I want you to know that he's here to restore you, and he's got a restoration cooked up for you as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will bless it and use it to the glory of God. And I pray that you will draw close any who may have drifted. Thank you for restoration and forgiveness falling on this congregation and on anyone listening by radio in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, he restores. Yes, he does. You can be seated. Thank you. God bless you. I feel like I'm in the first service and I'm on the fifth one. I feel good. God is good. Amen. Now we see that when the disciples arrived on shore, Jesus was holding a fish fry. He invited them over and they sat together. And I imagine that fish was incredible because the one that had created fish cooked the fish. And that was Jesus. Now, as I said, he had far more cooking than just the fish. He was there for a reason. He was there to restore Simon Peter who had vehemently, strongly denied the Lord three times. And on the third time, he restored or denied him with cursing. The Greek language is very strong here. Jesus, or Jesus walked out on the third denial and looked Simon Peter in the eye as he was denying having known him. When it says he was claiming not to have known him, he was literally claiming to have never even met him. He was utterly removing himself from any connection to Jesus Christ. It was a total denunciation. Totally denied him. They whisked Jesus by as he's been arrested. They're taking him to another place. And right then he looked at Peter. Can you imagine that look? He looked at Peter when he said, blankety, blankety, blank. I don't know him, never have known him. It must have burned a hole into that old fisherman's soul. You know that it did. The Bible says afterward, Peter went out and wept bitterly. It was a bitter denial, a bitter failure. He really fell. No question about it. He went through intense condemnation. Yeah, yeah, look at you, big man telling Jesus that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. You think you're hot stuff, and look what you just did. You denied even having an acquaintance with him. And you did it in front of a little girl at a campfire, warming yourself by the fire of the world. You denied him. 
What a guy. What a courageous man you are. I can just hear the condemnation. Peter had been convinced that he would never deny the Lord. He was very confident in himself that it would never happen. The Bible records that prior to his arrest, Jesus had told his disciples, this very night, all of you are going to fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Peter, always putting his foot in his mouth, piped up and said, not me, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. So he looked at all of his compadres, 11 of them, and said, they may do it, but I won't. I'll never fall away from you. I'll never deny you because I'm Simon Peter. I'm the one that walked on the water. I'm the one that got out of the boat while all these other sissies stayed in it. I'm the man. It's not going to be me. But Jesus knew him better than he knew himself, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, Peter, this very night, it's only going to be a few hours, son, before the rooster crows. You will disown me three times. Well, Peter jumped in again and said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Even if I have to go to prison, and he made it worse. He kept digging his own grave. But in a few hours he did. I don't know him. I don't know him. Blankety blank. I don't know him. And in our text, we find him having essentially returned to his old job because that's what condemned people do. When you feel really condemned and like you've really blown it and really failed, you have a tendency to say, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with this walk. I'm just going to go back to my old life. I'm going to go to what I've known. So for Peter, it was fishing. So he said, I'm just going to go back to fishing and go back to what I've always known. That's what I'm going to do. So he went back. And it's worth noting, I think, that as is often the case with you and me, Peter's attempt to return to his past had come up absolutely empty. You know why, folks? Because the Red Sea has been closed behind us. We can't go back. And if you try to go back to that old life, you will find that you catch nothing. You won't catch joy. You won't catch peace. You won't catch fulfillment. You won't catch anything if you go back to that old life. I think God put his hand down and did not let them catch even a minnow that night. Because if they had succeeded, they would have said, oh, look how our old life is blessed. But no, the old life brought back absolutely nothing. It was empty. And I think that's why Jesus came to the shore and stabbed them a little bit and said, children, do you have any meat? In other words, tell me what you've caught going back. Well, we don't have a thing. Now, as they returned to the shore, the familiar voice of Jesus was heard in the quiet morning hour. It just touches me. Now, I think Peter may have forgotten that Jesus had already told him, Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. That's a strong word. It's when you, you take grain with a pitchfork and you hurl it up into the air violently so that the wind hits that grain and blows the chaff off. And then it comes tumbling back to the ground. So sifting is, is when that wheat is violently tossed. And so Jesus was saying, uh, Simon, the devil has asked to violently toss you to really run a number on you. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned back, not if you turn back, but when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, what we don't realize a lot of the time is Jesus is praying for you and me. We have an intercessor in heaven who ever lives to make intercession for us. And when we fail, he is praying that our faith will not fail, but we will return. And when we do, we come back as strengtheners and helpers and healers. 
But now here's Jesus on the shore, the great psychologist, and he's calling his man to him. And we find that the Lord had already begun the steps leading to Peter's restoration even before this. This is what really got me as I read this story again. Because on the first Sunday morning, the first Easter, when Jesus rose from the dead, it says some of the women had gone to the tomb and they found it empty. And an angel was seated there. And the angel said this to them, go and tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Now, Peter had said, I don't know him, don't know him, don't know him. But now here is Jesus. He's freshly resurrected. He has defeated death, defeated hell, defeated the grave. He is, he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Master of the universe. And look what's on his mind. He, he makes a point of saying, be sure when you tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee that you also tell Peter, the one who denied me. And he named him. Peter's was the only name Jesus singled out and mentioned because Peter was the chief of the deniers. And the Lord wanted him to know, Peter, I'm not done with you. Don't you know that when they came to him and said, hey, we saw an angel and, and Peter, he mentioned your name. He said, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee and be sure you tell Peter. Let him know that he, his failure isn't final. Let him know that his failure hasn't taken him out. I think Peter must have said, are you sure he mentioned me? You sure it wasn't James or John or one of the others? Because I really, really blew it. After what I did to him, did he really call me by name? Does the Lord still want me? Now we read that after breakfast, Jesus looked across the fire. Here's a powerful moment. He looked right at Simon Peter. I think when Peter jumped into that lake to go see him, don't you know the emotions that were running through his mind when they said, it's the Lord, it's the resurrected Lord. Only the Lord tells us to throw the net on, on the right side and we bring in this great harvest of fish. That's what the Lord did with us before. That's the mark of the Lord. He gives you a harvest. He blesses you exceeding abundantly above. It's the Lord. Don't you know when he dived in? It was swimming to him. His emotions were running wild. What's he going to say to me? I haven't looked him in the eye since that moment. How am I going to face him? How are we going to do this? How are we going to handle it? Is he going to rebuke me? Is he going to love me? What's he going to do? But I've got to see him because I love him. So he gets there, and I'm sure it's very, very quiet. It says they dared not ask him who he was. They knew it was the Lord. So they're eating fish, and you can hear the fire crackling and popping. And Jesus finally looks straight at Peter. All the other disciples fade into the background. And he looks at Peter and says, let me ask you a question. He said, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than these? And he moved his hand across, pointing to the other disciples, a little stick, because Peter had said, though all of these deny you, I won't. So he says, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you love me more than these, like you said? Stick. He said, well, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my lambs. And three times he asked him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Simon Peter says, you know that I love you. Yes, I love you. It says when he asked him the third time, it grieved Peter. And he said, Lord, you know that I love you. I think Jesus did that on purpose. Three affirmations for three denials. Do you, I don't know him. Do you love me? I don't know him. Do you love me? I don't know him, blankety blank. Do you love me, Peter? And he was restoring him. Restoring his relationship. Restoring him to the Father. 
Now, through this story, we can see a beautiful picture of forgiveness and restoration because, folks, this is where we live. We live in a world where relationships get broken. We live in a world where we offend God sometimes, sin against God sometimes, and we can do one of two things with it. We can let it, let it drive us back to our old life, or we can get restored and go on. Life is all about forgiveness and restoration because human beings are the ones on the planet and we break relationship. We fail each other. We offend each other. And, and, and a wedge gets put in between us if we're not careful. So we look at how Jesus restored his relationship with Peter and it's beautiful. It gives a great picture. So let me share with you how he did it. First, we learn from Jesus to deal with offenses very quickly. Don't let resentment grow roots. Somebody offends you. See, Peter looked and said, I don't know him. How do you think that made Jesus feel? I've never even known him. Cursing, I don't know him. How do you think that made him feel? That hurt, but he knew he was going to do it. But you see, something happens. Somebody says something, does something, and we get hurt, and we get angry, and we get offended. And the word offense means that you're walking along, and, and you trip, Something makes you trip. It's not just somebody makes you angry or somebody hurts your feelings, but offense can also mean somebody does something that makes you fall into sin. Somebody tempts you. Somebody uh, entices you. Uh, offense is, is a very wide word. It's not just being angry or hurt, but it's you're walking along and somebody does something that entices you or tempts you into sin and you stumble and you trip and you fall, and your relationship with God is hurt. Or somebody makes you angry where you don't respond to it in the spirit, and it makes you sin in your anger. Your anger becomes bitterness, and it grows. And so you have become offended. You have tripped. You have fallen. And now you are separated from God in that there is a wedge between you and the Lord because you're angry or you're in some other kind of sin because you have become offended. That's why Jesus said, woe to the one who offends one of these little ones. It's better for them that a millstone were tied around their neck and they were thrown into the midst of the sea than they offend or make one of these little ones to stumble. And that's why I, I, I so fear for the school system that's in America now because of what they're teaching children, causing them to stumble into sin. Through offenses, listen, I, I have pastored for a long time, and I'm going to tell you, I am convinced, totally convinced today, that Satan's number one weapon against the church is offenses. The enemy puts an offense in between brothers and sisters, dads and moms, uh, 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 parents and children. They're, they're offenses. He uses an offense. You get mad at someone. You get disillusioned with someone. You get angry at somebody. And, 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 and you don't fix it, and it causes a wedge to come between you and them. And through offenses, the enemy divides and conquers us because we don't understand that you can't give an offense very long before it puts down roots. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, as goes the root, so goes the fruit. Whatever the root is, is what the fruit is going to be. So it says you get offended, you get hurt, you get angry. Somebody does something and you trip and you fall into that anger and into that grudge and into that unforgiveness. And scripture says that if you don't deal with it quickly, it puts down a root. And once that root goes down, then it puts up a fruit. 
And the fruit is it springs up and defiles many because mark it down, when somebody has been offended, they never keep it to themselves. They always talk about it. If you want to know if somebody has forgiven another person, just go somewhere with them for about 10 minutes. And if they haven't, it's coming out. It's going to come out. And what they want, they want you to join with them in the offense to take their side. And before you know it, you've got a church full of people and you've got a whole section of people that have taken somebody's offense and this section is mad at this section. And it all goes back to one offense where somebody didn't deal with it and the root went down and the fruit came up and, and, and people have taken the offense and taken the hurt and taken their cause and the enemy comes in and divides and he conquers. The longer you nurse a grudge, you're going to rehearse the grudge. And the longer you rehearse the grudge, you're going to disperse the grudge. You nurse it, you rehearse it, and then you start to disperse it. And out it goes. And the devil is happy and, and God is grieved. But listen, there's one way to stop an offense like that, and it is deal with it quickly. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, Paul wrote, because you give the devil an opportunity. You give him a place. So deal with it and deal with it quickly. Can you say it with me quickly? You say, well, how quickly? As quickly as it takes. As quickly as you can work it up, do it. You would think that having just been raised from the dead, that Jesus would have had other things on his mind than Simon Peter when he was resurrected. But notice how quickly he said to the angel, you go tell them I'm going to meet him in Galilee, and you be sure you tell Peter because there needs to be a healing. So though I've got the universe at my feet, I am concerned about one offense, one offense with Peter, and I want to fix it. It's a testament to just how seriously the Lord takes forgiveness and restoration in that he immediately focused on repairing his relationship with Peter. And he wants us to do the same thing. Now, I want you to notice what he didn't say because he could have said, he, he could have been like a lot of people we've known. I've known people like this. He could have sat down with Peter and here's what he could have said. Peter, you blew it. Looking at him across from that fire, Peter, I got you here because I, I really want to dress you down. I want to tell you what you did wrong. First, you don't have enough faith to walk on the water. I call you out on the water and you sink. You tried to talk me out of going to the cross and I had to rebuke you like the devil. You wouldn't let me wash your feet and I had to rebuke you for that too. Instead of praying with me in the garden, Peter, when I asked you to, you fell asleep. And on top of that, you embarrassed me in the garden when you got to pull out your sword and cut off that guy's ear. And I had to pick his ear up and paste it back on and heal him. <laughs> you ran away from me in my darkest hour, and now you've denied me. Peter, in all honesty, ever since I've known you, you've been cowardly, conceited, rash, slow, presumptuous, impulsive, and I've had enough. But he didn't do that because our Lord Jesus doesn't do that. You know why? Because he saw incredible potential in Simon Peter. This was the one who would stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach a three-minute message that brought 3,000 people to Christ, 1,000 per minute. This was the one who would one day walk down the street and his shadow would heal people. This was the one that gave us 1 Peter and 2 Peter. This was the one who finally said, don't, don't crucify me right side up. Crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord was. 
the potential that was in him. Jesus saw it. And so guess what? Jesus' message to Simon is the same as it is to us. Your failure is not fatal or final unless you quit. And I'm not going to give up on you. Don't give up on yourself. Jesus restored him. He gave up his right to retaliate against Peter, and instead he dealt with the offense. And he got the offense restored immediately. So first we learn from Jesus to deal with offenses quickly. Is there an offense today that you could leave church and go and deal with, and deal with it quickly? With a spouse, with a child, with a parent, with an in-law, with an outlaw, with a brother, with a sister? Second, I see this in what Jesus did with Peter. He made a conscious decision to forgive. Do you know that forgiveness is not a feeling? If you're waiting for the feeling to forgive, you will never forgive because the feeling isn't going to get you. You don't want to forgive them. You're not going to feel a warm fuzzy to, to forgive somebody that hurt you, that made you angry, that betrayed you. That's not what you're feeling. You're feeling like you want to whoop them. Or take vengeance on them. People often say, you know what? I don't want to forgive. I don't feel like forgiving. But we need to realize that forgiveness doesn't begin with a feeling. It begins with a conscious decision. Now you say, well, then how do I forgive? Let me show you what James said. James said, I want you to imagine a ship. The ship is out at sea. And the ship has sails. And here's that ship. And all of a sudden, there is a storm. And huge winds start blowing against those sails. James said, guess what? The wind of the storm doesn't decide or determine the direction the ship goes. You look under the water. You look at a little rudder. And the captain turns the steering wheel up there where the captain sits. And when he turns that wheel, that rudder turns. And it's the rudder that turns the direction that ship goes, not the wind blowing the sail. James said, your rudder is your tongue. So when the storms of offense blow against your life and somebody hurts you, wounds you, makes you cry, makes you angry, betrays you, stabs you in the back, does you wrong, does you dirty, and that wind is blowing against the sail, and that wind is saying, go ahead and crash against the rocks of bitterness. Hold that grudge. Don't forgive them. They don't deserve it. You need to take a stand and punish them. You say, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, forgive one another even as I have forgiven you. And so I don't feel like it, but I'm going to say it. I forgive. I forgive them. I release them. I forgive them. And as you do that, that's the rudder, and that's going to decide the direction your life goes. And instead of going against the rocks of bitterness, you will go out to the sea of God's peace and calm and blessing. Folks, we are not dependent on circumstances. Circumstances are dependent on what we say. So you say, I forgive. There have been times I forgave people many, many times in one day. Jesus said, how many times do you forgive in a day? 490 times if you have to. But do it. Say it. You're not the victim of the storm. You are in charge through your tongue. 
Like it or not, sometimes we're commanded by the Father to do something even if we don't really feel like it. Make the decision to forgive. Not because they deserve it. They may not. They may be terrible people. But listen, it's not how bad they are. It's how much do you want to be free? Because if they're that bad, then the last thing you want is for them to be controlling your life through a grudge and through bitterness. Don't allow anybody to control your life by holding a grudge. See, we think by taking a poison pill, we're going to kill them. But when you take the poison pill, you kill you. When you don't forgive and you hold the grudge, you're killing you, and they go on with life. Deal with offenses quickly and make the conscious decision to forgive. And third, I see that Jesus was the first to initiate. Jesus didn't wait for Peter to come crawling to him. I don't think Peter would have done it. Peter was under too much condemnation. He was really under it. Can you imagine? Peter didn't believe. He didn't understand the resurrection. He thought to himself, those two days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, I guarantee you Peter was dying a thousand deaths because he thought that the last thing Jesus, who he loved, was going to remember of him before he died was that he had denied him. And he was living with that, beating himself up with that. And so I don't think he would have ever returned in any way, but Jesus went to him. Sometimes we want to sit back and we want to have our offenders come begging to us for forgiveness. And we say, when they come to me, that's when I'll do it. If they don't come to me, I'm not going to do it. Why should I do it? Because you want to be free. So they know the word too. Well, okay, they know the word too. Let them answer for what they know of the word. You answer for what you know. Don't wait for them to do it. You do it. Well, why can't they do it? Let God answer that. You do it. Jesus took the initiative. He said, go, be sure you tell Peter the first indication he was going to seek him out. The truth is, if you wait for the other person to do it, it rarely happens. I've seen people go years waiting for the other person to be the one to come and say, let's make it right. I've seen years go by and I've seen people lose their walk with God and lose their joy and lose their peace and lose their fruitfulness because they were waiting for the other one to make the first move. You be the big guy, you be the big gal, and you make the first move. How bad do you want to be free? People divided by an offense. I have seen literally get out of church, get out of prayer, get out of the word, and live a wilderness life because they wouldn't forgive. We can decide to sit in our misery and resentment or we can initiate the forgiveness. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, you go. You go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. How many times have I done that? Many times I've gone and been the one to break the ice and say, hey, let's get things right. Let's get this healed. Let's get this settled. You go initiate the forgiveness. Fourth, you've got to hand the vengeance over to God. Because you think by holding the grudge and by refusing to forgive, you're taking vengeance on them. But you're not. You're taking vengeance on yourself. You're hurting yourself. Romans 12, 19 says, don't repay evil for evil, but leave room for God's vengeance. For vengeance is mine to repay, says the Lord. God claims the corner on the vengeance market. God says, if you want to see this thing handled, 
the wrong that was done righted and addressed, get out of the way, give them to me, and let me take vengeance. Now, some of you are saying, I tried that for a week, and nothing happened to them. They didn't drop dead. They didn't, you know, they weren't vaporized. Uh, you know, they didn't get in a terrible car wreck. Matter of fact, I heard they got a raise. Where's God's vengeance? Hey, you've got to leave that up to God because I promise you things are happening in their private life. You don't know a thing about. If you give the vengeance to God, God says, not I might, not I hope so. He said, I will repay. This is exactly what Jesus did with all offenses towards him. Peter writes of Jesus, quote, he did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. And did Jesus not have a case? Wrongly accused, falsely accused, wrongly crucified, whipped for doing nothing wrong, called a devil, called a deceiver humiliated, beaten beyond recognition for doing absolutely nothing wrong. Did Jesus not have a case? But it says Jesus left his case to God. And sometimes we hold on to that case. I've got a case. They really did me wrong. I guarantee I'm right about this. They did me wrong. You've got a case. But you know what? You've got to give that case to God. He's the judge, he's the prosecutor, and he's the jury. Leave it with God and then walk away and trust him. And if you start thinking about it again, say, well, no, I gave that to the Lord. The devil come knocking on your door and say, you better start thinking about that again. What's happening to them? Have they gotten theirs? And you got to say, I gave it to God. I gave my case to God. It's in his hands. It's not mine to deal with. It's his. When you've been wounded, remember, you are not the judge. God saw it, and God will deal with it. He noted it. He knows what happened. He knows what came down. And in his own good time, in his own good way, God will deal with it. And then finally, here's my favorite part. We learn from Jesus to release the past and focus on the future. The past is past because it's the past. There comes a time where you got to quit living life looking in the rear view mirror. I wrote a book on this. I called it The Windshield is Bigger Than the Rear View Mirror. It came from a saying that says there is a reason the windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror. Can I give you some good news today? As soon as you give it to God and forgive, God's about to bless you real good. Paul said, forgetting, can you say with me forgetting? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching to what lies ahead. Notice, you can't reach until you forget. You can't reach until you let go. Forgetting what lies behind. Now, that comes from a Greek word that means put something out of your mind on purpose. Forget. It doesn't mean you get divine amnesia. It doesn't mean God takes away your ability to remember it. You can remember it, but you don't live there. You don't camp there. You don't think about it all the time. You're not rehearsing it, you're not nursing it, and you're not dispersing it because it's no longer an issue with you. You have forgotten it, you have put it behind, and you are now reaching to what lies ahead. And Isaiah the prophet chimed in with the same idea, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in your wasteland. 
Forget the former things. Forget that ex. Forget that former friend. Forget that church. Forget that pastor. Forget those elders. Forget those people. Forget the former things. Give them to God. Don't dwell on the past. Don't dwell on the past. Give the case to God and move on. And, and what will happen is you'll start seeing that God's doing a new thing. Well, I didn't even see that. You didn't see it because you were looking in the rearview mirror. But as soon as you quit looking in the rearview mirror and you look through the windshield, you see that God is doing a new thing. It's budding up all around you. There it is. He's doing this. He's doing that. He's doing the other. He's opening a new door. He's opening new opportunities. He's bringing into your life new people. He is doing a new thing. Shall you not know it? He's about to bless your socks off. He is never checkmated by the devil. He always looks at what the devil does and checkmates him. A new thing, that excites me. He says, you're in a wilderness, but as soon as you forgive and you put it beside you and you give your case to God, he says, I send in the heavy duty equipment and I make a road in your wilderness. And I say, this is the way, walk ye in it. And you're, there you are in a desert from unforgiveness or from an offense. And as soon as you forgive and start looking through the windshield, God says, I'm going to send a river through your desert, a river of refreshing, a river of fresh spiritual water. I'm going to do a new thing. Shall you not see it? Each time Peter told the Lord that he loved him, Jesus pointed to his divine assignment saying, feed my sheep. What was he doing? Don't focus on your failure, Peter. Focus on your future. Feed my sheep. Focus on your future assignment and not on your failures. So look at what Jesus showed us. Deal with it quickly. Make a conscious decision to forgive. Be the first to initiate. Leave the vengeance with God and focus on your future. It's bright. Can I tell you the truth? It's so bright, you need sunglasses to look at it. Literally, S-O-N. And God will do a new thing in your life. How many of you want to be blessed today? You want to be blessed? Let's stand together, can we? I had several people come up to me after the first service in tears. They said, I needed to hear that so bad. One woman said to me, I have been so angry for so long that I have forgotten what it li it's like to have peace. And she was weeping, tears going down her face. And she said, something happened to me listening to that message. And I forgive. And then she looked at me and said, I forgive you. I said, what did I do? <laughs> I hadn't really done anything. She was just mad at all preachers. And I was included. She says, I forgive you because you're a preacher. I said, I get it. I get it. I do. I understand that. And she got set free. When you're offended, it can be your stumbling stone, your tombstone, or your stepping stone. What are you going to do with it? Kathy and I, a number of years ago, had, we, we faced a time where we had to forgive a lot of people. And we knew this is either going to be our tombstone and we'll end up going off and doing something else or it'll be our stepping stone 
and we're going to go on with God in our calling. So we had to get together and we had to forgive and we had to do it repeatedly. And as we did, this came into being. And he did a new thing. And I am so glad we did because I would never want to turn my future over to people who did us wrong. Never would want to do that. Why would I give them that power? We went on and we got blessed for it. You're here because of it. Smile. You're part of our blessing. All right. So I want you to bow with me for a moment, would you? And I want you to think to yourself, and let me ask you a personal question. Do you need to release somebody? Do you need to have a relationship restored like Jesus restored his with Simon Peter? Do you need to deal with it quickly? Do you need to take the initiative? Do you need to give vengeance to God and give your case to God and trust Him with it so you can move on? You need to let a grudge go? I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer with your heads bowed. If you can say, Pastor, this was for me and I want to be set free today. I, I need to move on. This is not going to be my tombstone. It's going to be my stepping stone. If that's you, will you raise your hand and say, I need to let someone go today. Maybe you need to get right with God. It's between you and Him like it was Peter and Jesus. Many of you, many of you, let's pray together. Let me lead you in a simple prayer. Say with me, Lord Jesus, because you forgave me, I forgive them. I forgive that church or that person. You go ahead and name them. With my tongue, I forgive them. I steer the ship of my life to the place of forgiveness. And I receive your blessing. And if you've sinned against the Lord, say right now, Lord, forgive me. By action or by word, I denied you. Forgive me. Restore our relationship in the name of Jesus. Now, if you believe the Lord heard that, I want you to lift your hands and say, Lord, thank you. And let's give him a hand of praise for being a forgiveness.